to the U.S. Fire Journal Podcast. We offer views and opinions on the fire service around the world with no topic too tough to handle. Visit us at usfirejournal.com for all your fire service information. Now, here's your host, Jay. Good morning and welcome into the podcast. Today is July the 28th. As the man said, I'm Jay. And, uh... Uh, three topics to talk about today. Two of them are a little bit in-depth, and uh, then the third one, just commentary. You know, it's hot. I, there's no question about that. It's hot, and when it's hot, uh, people either like to go someplace where maybe there's a higher elevation, it's a little bit cooler, or people flock to the beach. And as someone who grew up flocking to the beach, which wasn't very far away, um, I get it. Being out on the beach is a lot of fun. There's uh, a lot of scenery. Uh, there's a little bit of a breeze coming off the ocean. You can get in the water when you want to. And, and let's face it, people are addicted to the beach. So much so that oftentimes they like to build giant houses on the beach or even small houses. And you know, as, as firefighters, as company officers, as chiefs, we all like to think, you know what? We have a model in which we we have a model that, that we use to fight fire, and it's pretty much the same. It's universal, and I would say that from the perspective of, of looking at things overall, yes, you have to stretch lines, you have to you have to get water to the fire, you you need to affect ventilation. Of course, there's search and rescue, all those sorts of things. Those things are absolutely uh, along the same lines and and uniform in many ways. But beachfront structures do pose their own problems and that's what I kind of want to talk about today I have uh, this is one of the most requested topics on the my friends uh, uh, on the coast both coasts uh, like to send to me and I frankly I haven't done it because there hasn't been a lot of time there's been other topics I wanted to talk about I wrote an, actually I wrote several articles about this. Um, I believe one of them was in Fire Engineering many years ago. It's well over a decade and a half, um, maybe closer to 20 years. I, I don't recall the exact date. And I've also written it for other trade magazines and, and also uh, numerous blog posts. And I also did a podcast episode on beachfront, fighting fires and beachfront structures um, back in the old days, way back when. And uh, so anyway, I thought, why not? Let's revisit this. But I don't want to devote a whole podcast to it. So I'm going to take five minutes or so and just talk about it. When you have a fire on the beach, there's a couple of things that are a little bit different than your standard uh, uh, house fire. And of course, you still have fire. You have smoke. You have uh, victims until you know there aren't any. So we expect the fire. We expect the victims. Oftentimes, we don't expect the access problems. Beachfront structures pose tremendous access issues. I mean, you name it, it's an issue. From uh, getting the apparatus in the in the uh, near the right part of the structure or where you want it, um, being able to see numerous sides of it depending upon how it's situated. Of course, you've you know Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta. Depending on the side that. Uh, uh, that we're talking about here, you also have access problems with respect to getting a ladder truck anywhere. And let look, in most beach communities, uh, you don't have 
really wide roads. You don't have uh, main streets that have four lanes that are right on the beach, especially near structures. Um, you oftentimes have uh, narrow streets are narrower than you would find in most places. Another problem is, is getting off the road. If you get off the road near a beachfront structure, oftentimes what are you in? Sand. Sand doesn't forgive you. They don't forgive bad spotting. Um, outriggers and sand aren't very good friends. Um, of course, there's a difference between hard packed sand and your, and your soft sand. That, that's, there's a huge difference there. But the bottom line is access is an issue. And where access is an issue, you also have an issue getting water. Think about that. If you have narrow streets, you have to think ahead about where your water supply is coming from. Which direction is it going to be coming? You know, can the, can the aerial reach the structure? Lots of beachfront structures are right up on the road. That helps a lot. You know, you ride in any beach community and uh, you're going to have structures closer to the road, but you're going to have some that are way off the road. If you go to some of the more affluent uh, islands uh, around the United States, uh, you're, you're going to find that there are long driveways. I, I recall one uh, driveway on a barrier island, uh, a very wealthy, wealthy barrier island that I worked at uh, uh, for about a year, I guess. And the driveway to it, it was impossible to get anything down that driveway except a car. You couldn't get a, you couldn't get a pickup truck down there, let alone getting something larger than that. And, and I can hear the guys now, well, I'd put my truck down. No, you wouldn't. No, you, you can hang on to that. There's no Beverly Hills. Uh, there's no Beverly Hillbilly solution to this. The, the bottom line, this was a very wealthy person, very powerful person nationwide, not just in that beach community. And it took a lot um, to, to get those, those uh, trees and all trimmed back so that they could at least get a vehicle down that road. Forget a ladder truck. So, you know, is that the norm? No, it's not. And, and there are houses like that all across the country. On beachfronts, though, here's something that's vital. Speed. You got to get there. You got to get water on the fire. So you can imagine speed. What happens? Slows everything down. If you can't get down a driveway, if you've got to work to get in the proper position, that slows everything down. It really does. Um. Some of my friends will recall this fire. Uh, it was on a, uh, a barrier island. And two famous people, uh, one was a powerful politician and one was the son of a very powerful athlete. Uh, their houses burned down. Uh, and their houses burned down. Uh, you know, they blame the fire department, naturally, because that's what people do. Um, their houses burned down not because the fire department didn't get there. Here's another issue. Wind. We talked about those breezes coming off the ocean. Well, in that particular fire, you had access issues. You had the water issues we talk about because you got to get water. Then, what else? Well, you know, wind, water, personnel. Couldn't get enough trucks in the area 
in from their department to get there and affect a rapid knockdown of fire. Once that fire spreads, now you're looking at adjacent structures. Unfortunately, uh, three structures burnt burnt down. Two of them were uh, <laughs> were populated uh, by uh, by some powerful people. Our department went to it. Um, there wasn't a whole lot we could do, uh, in part because once a fire is started and gained that foothold, now you're just trying to find a spot and say, no, nah, it's not going past here. Thou shalt not pass type uh, uh, tactics, uh, Gandalf tactics. And so the, the whole thing ended up being um, really a giant garbage fire. Three houses, I mean, there's nothing you can do. There really isn't. Um, but th- that's one of the other issues. You have these large houses that are built close together. Now they're on fire. Now you have wind off the ocean. You can't get, you can't get there quick enough. You can't get lines in there quick enough. Um, here's another one, right? Elevation differences. Some people go, what do you mean? Well, here's the thing. Ladders on sand, especially if it's built up, so you'll have some houses that sit basically on dunes, right? And, and those dunes are elevation different. I mean, that's a different elevation. When you're trying to raise ladders, you know, you, you're having to, to carry ladders around through oftentimes this soft sand. Now you got to raise them. Then you got to get somebody up them. And, and let's face it, you got to get somebody to get up the ladder. And let's face it. You need a lot of personnel to accomplish those tasks. There are not a lot of beachfront fire departments, especially the smaller ones, who have enough personnel. I mean, let's face it. There are large departments throughout this country that don't have enough personnel. Now you have smaller departments that there may be riding two or three to a rig. They get there. Now they've got 50 tasks to accomplish. And please, spare me the whole, well, what you have to, no, no. The bottom line is sometimes fire just outstrips the personnel. And nobody wants to hear it, but that's the city leader's fault. It really is. That's their fault. They don't want to pay for enough firefighters. Now, in some cases, those city leaders aren't being told what they need, right? Because job safety, right? Nobody wants to bring bad news. Nonetheless, it's a huge, huge issue when a house catches on fire because then you have two houses that have burnt or three houses. Look at fires in communities that are, that are surrounded by water, and oftentimes you'll see two houses burning, not one. And that's because of the wind and access issues. Beaches are no different. Keep in mind this as well. People flock to beaches. When you're fighting a fire, everyone's a critic. And on a beach, there are lots and lots of people out there. So it becomes a public spectacle in ways that other parts of the city might not. Some towns, the only time they make the news is when a big house or a building burns. And here's finally something that's irritating. You go to most beach communities, and there's precious little land left on a beach precious little why well it's money right people are developing on 
parcels of land on beachfronts that you wouldn't find developed anywhere else. Money. Money, money, money. Tons of people want to live on the beach. And those who live on the beach, they want to sell property. Or those who own property want to sell it. And they try to pack as many houses into a small area to a smaller footprint than they can possibly than they responsibly should be able to. What happens? Now you have all kinds of issues. And you have tremendous safety issues. Tremendous safety issues. What do you do? Well, you can fight it. But money typically trumps everything else in this country. Uh, in most countries. In all countries, really. Uh, money and power trumps everything. So you have to figure out a plan to be able to save as many people as you can and try to protect the property. But look, if you're fighting fire in 30, 40 mile an hour winds or higher, your chances of success go down. They just do. You add in access, elevation, large houses, feet apart, uh, access issues, everything. You add it all together and you have a disaster. That's beachfront firefighting. I had a conversation last night with uh, uh, someone that I value highly. Um, he's a captain on a rescue and uh, in the Northeast. He and I have been uh, friends for a long time since I went up and started riding with that department way, way back when. Um, he had just come on as a firefighter when I was riding up there. and He's great at what he does, very knowledgeable. Um, a lot, a lot of activity. He's seen a lot. And he stayed a captain because he thinks that's the best job in the fire department. Eh, I don't think so, but hey, more power to you. Anyway, we're talking last night, and we got into search and rescue. And uh, he was at he was at a conference uh, over the past year, and he was uh, talking to a group of guys and uh, talking about search and rescue. And, and this guy walks up, and uh, after he finished talking to them, and he said, uh, "You know, I I can't go back and tell my guys to do that." And he said, "Well." Why? Why not? And uh, he said, well, it's dangerous. Well, yeah. You know what's not dangerous in firefighting? Nothing. Uh, everything is dangerous. Everything. And, but that's the kind of attitude that a lot of people have. Well, I can't ask my people to go above a fire because it's dangerous. What happened to firefighting? Why are you in this job? Why? Why? Serious. Of course it's dangerous. Of course the average person doesn't do it. Thank goodness the average person doesn't do it. But with that kind of mentality, you're the average person. You shouldn't be on a piece of fire apparatus. You should be, I don't know, delivering potato chips. Whatever it is your life's passion is. 
But get away from firefighting. Of course it's dangerous. Search and rescue. Imagine, if you will, Coast Guard helicopter pilots and, and rescue swimmers who go out to save people. Imagine if they took, well, you know, it's dangerous. I, I can't ask my guys to get in the water. Okay, don't do it then. Get out of that job. Of course it's dangerous. But he and I went on to talk about how important it is. You know, you got to have a partner, your search partner. Of course, sometimes you end up searching alone. That's, that's the nature of, a, of, uh, of being busy and seeing fire activity. You know, the old saying, uh, no plan survives, no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Well, no SOP survives first contact with a chaotic situation. You try to keep things within the within those uh, uh, within those areas, but every once in a while, something kind of sneaks out, and you have to do something. That's search, rescue, fighting fire. That's the nature of it. But you always want to have a partner. Something else we talked about: breathing. We take for granted that, that, you know, our breathing, and it's a good thing. If we thought about breathing all that much, we'd probably be horrible at it. In fact, we are horrible at it. But when you're searching, you gotta keep you got to keep control of your breath. You know, you're not out playing football. You're not, you're not supposed to be taking in these huge breaths. Um, breathing is something that you can alter. You can alter it for the better. Some people seem to have this, this gift to, to be able to breathe slower, uh, stay steady. When you're doing that, you're actually helping your body. You're being able to go longer. Um, it, it tamps down panic. There's a reason why mindfulness is such a big thing now. Um, it's all about controlling the breath. Um, years ago, I read a book. It's been 25, 30 years, actually. Um, I can't remember the total name, but it was uh, how breath masters, uh, how they breathe. And it had to do with combat and physical combat, uh, combat sports, and then combat in general. And people who can control their breath, who can control their breathing, they see things that, that others don't, that others who are in a panic don't see. So in search and rescue, yes, keeping track of your breathing, important. Another thing that's important is that internal timekeeper, right? How long have I been searching? When's the last time I heard my partner? Was it 10 seconds ago or a minute? Wait a minute. Was it two minutes? This internal timekeeper, uh, you can also develop that, but you only develop that through repetition. And that's putting on personal protective equipment, masking out, breathing air, and performing searches. That's how you build that internal timekeeper. You can take a watch, and this is interesting to do too. You can take a watch, sit on your couch or chair, click it like a stopwatch, and just stare at it. You'll be surprised how long it takes for 30 seconds to come around, how long it takes for a minute to come around, because you're anticipating it. You're looking at it. It takes a while. Then take the watch, set it aside, and sit there without looking at the watch. And after a period of time, hit stop on the watch and then look at it. 
Sometimes you'll think, ah, I've been sitting here a minute. You've been sitting there 20 seconds. Other times you'll go, you know what? I've been sitting here for 20 seconds, and you've been sitting there for two minutes. It is interesting, to say the least. And that's something that we all need to develop, is is that internal timekeeper. That's a lifesaver. You know, if you get lost in what you're doing at that exact moment, bad things can happen. Not that they will, but they can. The more you practice, the more you train, the more you begin to realize that all these things are vital to survival for you, your partner, and for victims, which we always expect victims. The final thing that he mentioned, and I agree 100% with this, is maximizing your search area. When you're in doing a primary search, which what? We call it the quick and dirty. Um, Look, use your entire body. Don't keep your arms tucked in and then just hope to, to hit the person with your head. That's maximize your search area. Get that arm and leg out. Get, get both arms and legs out. Um, depending on heat conditions, get your arm up. Um, you know, if you're coming to a bed, search the whole bed, not half the bed. Do what you have to do to maximize that search area. It might be the only chance that person has. And by training your body to always maximize that search area, um, you're perhaps saving somebody's life in the future. Just a few tips on, on search and rescue. Finally today, the, my friend and I from last night were talking, and, and he's talking about their, uh, their new chief. And I say he's new. He's been there, I guess, a year. But to them, he's still new. And he asked me, he's like, you know, he's like, uh, what, uh, our, our chief's starting to come around. He's been coming around for a couple months trying to visit stations and all. And uh, he said, you know, do you think that's a good idea? Should the chief just stay where he's at? I'm like, no, I think the chief should come around and visit. I think it's a good idea. I, I don't, you know, it's like having family over. Um, it's nice to have them come visit. You don't want them over too too often. Um, absence makes the heart grow fonder, I think, is, is a great way to put it. But you do want a chief you see. I, I don't understand this philosophy of, of people who uh, make it to, to a high, high rank and then they never come out of their bunker. Um, to me, it's piss poor. Um, but... Everybody has a different philosophy about that. I just think that some are, are a little bit more, uh, uh, more in tune with firefighters than others. doesn't mean they should come around all the time, though. I, I don't believe that. Um, not all the time. You know, if they're coming over, hanging out for two hours every, every tour, that's a problem. Um, there's something going on. But here's something else I want to point out, and this is kind of related to that. Chiefs watch firefighters. They do. They watch what firefighters do, and that's how they form their opinion on them. But make no mistake, firefighters watch chiefs. They watch them to see what kind of decisions they make, who they, uh, whether or not they are making the right decisions for firefighters or themselves. It's a two-way street there. Chiefs watch firefighters, and firefighters watch chiefs. And frankly, that's how 
respect is earned and lost. It's how, uh, frankly, it's how perception oftentimes rules. If, if firefighters are watching a chief and they do something that's, you know, I don't know the best way to put it really, but if they do something that's not in line with the values that they purportedly share with people, then that's a bad thing. And oftentimes that's the start of a, uh, of a demise in that relationship. And no chief can survive without their firefighters. They just can't. Um, firefighters understand that chiefs come and go, and they do. Uh, no firefighters can survive without that, that leadership either. I mean, it's a two-way street. But just don't forget, everybody's watching everybody else. And uh, that's how things work in society. That's how it works in the fire service. That'll do it for today. Uh, we'll be back on Sunday with another edition. Until then, stay safe.